Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to season six of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Jack Newton, the CEO and founder of Clio, our podcast brand partners. Jack completed his BSc and MSc in Computer Science at the University of Alberta. In 2008, Jack, alongside his childhood friend, Ryan, founded Clio, the first cloud-based legal practice management software. Since then, Clio has been awarded number one for Canada's best managed companies by Deloitte, number one for Canada's most admired corporate cultures by Waterstone Human Capital, the first company to receive BC Tech Association's Company of the Year Anchor Success category, and more recently, the Data Breakthrough Awards 2021. Clio became a legal tech unicorn business in 2021 and has now surpassed the 100 million US annual recurring revenue, achieving Centaur status a title used to describe private software-as-service companies with over $100 million in annual recurring revenue. Jack is also the author of The Client-Centered Law Firm, sharing his insights on how to provide a client-centered practice. Jack has been named Canada's most admired CEO by Waterstone Human Capital, EY's Entrepreneur of the Year, and BIV's 40 Under 40, and Person of the Year at the 2020 Technology Impact. Award. So a very, very warm welcome, Jack. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And folks, this is our in-person recording. We haven't done one for quite some time. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us in real life. And before we dive into all your amazing achievements and what you've successfully done with Clio, we do have a customary icebreaker here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the hit series Suits in terms of its reality of the law? Uh, well, it starts off being you know fairly fake in that it's shot in Toronto with Toronto pretending to be New York. So there, there's a good <laughs> Canadian connection with this show, but it's it's I don't know maybe a five a five out of ten. And they they don't seem to use any law practice management software in the firm either. So maybe it's even a three or four out of ten. I mean, it just can't be a successful firm without a bit more technology. Donna, if she was real, would would have LPM's offer. Yeah, this is very, very true. And I absolutely agree. I also gave it a rating of five. So great minds think alike when I was interviewed on another show. But this is all about you, Jack. So to begin with, Jack, would you mind telling us a bit about your background and journey? Yeah, absolutely. So what surprises some people is my background is not actually in legal. My background is in technology. I did a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree in computer science, specializing in machine learning. My first job out of university was Actually, the very first software developer at a University of Alberta spin-off company called Konomics. At that company, I was developing software to do medical diagnostics. And it's where I kind of caught the startup bug. It's where I really got excited about the idea of eventually building my own product and building my own company. And along that journey, my lifelong best friend, Ryan Govro, and I, around 2007, started to see that the cloud was transforming almost every industry out there and started looking for an industry that we thought was ripe for transformation. And Ryan was at the time working at one of Canada's largest law firms called Gowlings, and he saw how poorly they leveraged IT to get their work done. And, and that was the, you know, the light bulb moment for, for us realizing that legal from a technology transformation coupled with this massive transformational opportunity that the cloud represented was an opportunity for us to build this 
company we'd been building, dreaming of building together for, for more than a decade. And that's where we started work on Clio. Yeah, and we're going to talk lots more about Clio, but I want to dive back in just to your journey because, you know, it's the argument, are entrepreneurs born or made? And let's go back to that sort of computer science side of you. Where did that interest and the reason for wanting to go to university and that come from? Yeah, I think in my case, I'm definitely an example of an entrepreneur that was was born you know, when I was growing up, when I was as young as eight years old, I started to think about businesses I wanted to, to run. I started a, a snow shoveling business when I was 12 or 13 years old and I, I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, which is a, a very cold and very snowy place in Canada. So it's a good good place to have a snow shoveling business. I ended up enrolling some of my friends and my brothers in that in that snow shoveling business. I, I had a computer building business when I was around 13 or 14 years old and uh, this is back before the days of Dell and a lot of the bigger computer companies out there. So building building PCs for for people was one of my early passions. I started programming probably when I was around eight or nine as well. So I, I was always passionate about computers. I remember my dad bringing home an 8086, one of the very first personal computers, and just falling in love with it and writing initially games for, for my, my brothers and myself and, and eventually full-blown programs. So by the time I got into university, I was pretty set on computer science being the direction I I wanted to pursue. And for me, what was always so exciting about computer science and programming, and, and I, I think this is the, the same thing about company building that I enjoy so much, is you you really create something out of nothing. You can sit down at your computer and open up a terminal and start writing some code and build something that didn't exist and build something that does something useful. So that's that's for me what's always been my passion and something that has always made me you know, both a computer geek at heart and a builder and a bit of an entrepreneur as a result of that. And the perfect cocktail for success. And just listening to you there, there's no surprise why you're inspired by Steve Jobs. And I know he's someone... Another tinkerer, yeah. <laughs> Another little tinker. So our 2008s were very different. You were busy founding a tech unicorn with your buddy Ryan. I was coming out of university broke with no job <laughs> or anything to do. So let's go back to 2008. How did the name Clio come about? Well, we were both broke in 2008. So we did have that in common. We, so Ryan and I started building Clio in 2007 and officially jumped in with both feet, quitting our jobs and really starting on, on the company in earnest in 2008. And part of the building journey was naming the product, of course. So there, there's an interesting history to the name where we, we started building Clio in 2007, where we saw this market need. And, and we saw that there was, number one, the cloud that was going to change everything. And we saw that legal was an industry that had really not been transformed by technology in general and had not been transformed by the internet in particular and thought that this was inevitable and we wanted to be the people driving that transformation. So part of the, I would say, the, the business model validation we went through, the, that we wanted to prove out this hypothesis that there's an opportunity for this kind of a product we started working with uh, the Law Society of British Columbia, which is uh, the, the regulator for, for, for BC, for, for legal, and similar to you know, law societies here and similar bar associations in the, in the U.S. And we, we had a conversation with the director of practice standards who helped us understand a few things that was really interesting. His job was disciplining lawyers that have gotten offside somehow. They've, they've mishandled trust accounts. They've maybe deliberately or accidentally done that. They've had complaints filed against them by clients. They've missed key limitation dates. And, and for some reason, they're in hot water with, with a regulator. And his job is to 
you know, sanction them in some way, you know, sometimes that's as severe as, as being disbarred. Often it's just, you know, how do we remediate the behavior and make sure it doesn't happen again? And what his comments to, to Ryan and I were, were, were a few, a few fold. One was it was solos and small firms that he had to spend all of his time disciplining. And the solos and small firms, you know, if they drop a ball, there's no one to catch it. Whereas a lawyer at a big firm, there's a small flotilla of people ready to, to catch that ball. There's paralegals, there's assistants. So there's a lot of people to, to jump in and help out the large firm lawyer. The solo, the small firm lawyer, even the, a lot of mid-sized lawyers don't have that support ecosystem. And then the question we asked, Kenzie was his name, but the question we asked Kenzie was, well, if they don't have that human support system, why aren't they using technology to better organize their practices? And, you know, Kenzie basically said, well, there's a bunch of technology out there. There's, at the time, there was, you know, probably a dozen practice management products that were on-prem, like Practice Master and Abacus and Amicus and Time Matters and you name it. But they were all expensive and they were all hard to use. So this was the light bulb moment for us realizing that Clio was, was a, a really big opportunity for this solo small firm segment. But then the question we asked ourselves, well, how big can this segment be? This, this feels like it must be a pretty small segment. And uh, the research we did really opened our eyes. And again, we were coming from this outside of legal. So all of this was, we were talking about suits earlier. Our perception of what the average law firm was, was informed by the predecessors to suits, you know, the Allen McBeals and the, the Boston legals of the day. So we thought, you know, most lawyers practiced in these, you know, big 500 plus person firms with fancy AAA downtown office space and realized, no, this is actually a very, a very entrepreneurial space. And 80% of lawyers practice in firms of 10 or less. And half of all lawyers practice as solos. I'm getting to your question, by the way. So, <laughs> I'm loving so it. The, Carry on. The way we got to Cleo's a name was, was a, a fewfold. Number one, Kenzie helped give it the, the name. When we decided, you know, okay, we're going to build this product. It's going to be targeted at solos and small firms. We wanted to make it really personable and relatable. We wanted to almost be able to anthropomorphize the name into something that's like, hey, this is somebody helping your law firm. We did not want to name it what it felt like every legal product out there was, which was like tech pro, master, mm -hmm. legal, lex, select. You know, like that, that, that was something we wanted to strenuously avoid. So we, we said we want, we want this relatable name and something that is short and memorable. And what, what Kenzie suggested was Clio as basically a portmanteau of client organizer. And we were like, okay, you know, it's Clio. All right. It's, to be honest, our initial reaction was like, it's not great, but we, <laughs> we need something. We need to go live in two months. So let's pick something. And Clio it was. And then the, the really neat kind of bookend to this story is prior to choosing Clio's a name, we had chosen Themis Solutions, Inc., as the parent company name so that anyone that's employed by Clio in our terms of service, the legal entity behind Clio is Themis Solutions Inc. And we, we chose Themis as the, the Greek goddess of truth and law and order, the goddess of justice, basically, as the, the name of our parent company. And what we discovered a couple of years later that just felt like really poetic is that Clio is also the Greek muse of history. So there's this very neat kind of Greek mythological thread through the, the naming of Clio. And so I, I think it, it worked out wonderfully. And it's funny, I was reading Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. I don't know if you've happened to read, read his autobiography, but 
it's really interesting hearing him talk about the naming of Nike. And and again, they needed to change their company name because of a, a lawsuit from another company. And they landed on, you know, somebody on his team suggested Nike. And initially, he didn't love the name and, of course, grown on to become one of the most iconic brands in history. And I feel the same way about Clio. I, you know, even though we were maybe a bit so-so on it, you know, to start with, it's really a name that I love now. What a beautiful story. And it just reminds me of what I tell people all the time. Done is better than perfect because perfect never gets done. And in this scenario, it just happened to be one of the most best decisions you made. And I also want to move on to, you know, lovely knowing about the name of Clio, but a bit more about the strategy because you were the first cloud-based legal practice management software to hit the market. So explain more about what Clio is and sort of Clio's strategy in particular. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And our strategy was really pretty straightforward, which was when we looked at the needs of small to medium-sized law firms and looked at what the problems they were trying to solve, there was, number one, a very clear need for something that was easier to use, simpler, and streamlined compared to the solutions that were on the market. I talked about Time Matters earlier. Time Matters, you, you needed a consultant to come in and spend a few days with you and your firm configuring it customizing. It was almost like buying SAP for an enterprise. And the average solo small firm, it was just a non-starter. They didn't have the time to make that kind of investment in getting their software up and running. The second piece was the software of the day was very expensive, both not only in terms of the time to implement, but in terms of absolute cost. You needed to buy the software, which was $1,000 plus. You needed to buy a server to run the software on, which was another few thousand dollars. You needed to get all the networking configured and you often need to hire an IT guy or gal to come in and, and figure all of that stuff for you. So the the absolute costs, both in terms of time and money, were were basically prohibitive for most small to medium-sized law firms. And we saw that the cloud is this radical transformation of technology that you could just type in a website address and pay a month-to-month subscription fee and have your entire practice in the cloud and managed by by a third party and trusting a third party with your with your data and with your your software and that was really the biggest leap that we had to make the leap of faith we had to make which was you know as the very first cloud based product in the marketplace is this marketplace going to embrace the idea or even if it's not as as full blown as embracing cloud based software is it an industry that will accept cloud based software and again this was just to set the time period 2008 so the the iPhone for example had just been released Dropbox was was announced and released to the public that year so the cloud was very nascent so this idea although it sounds like something like what is generally accepted wisdom today was not at all the case in 2008 where the cloud is very early and the cloud and legal and what the ramifications for lawyers that have very specific duties to their clients and their data what, what does this all mean and, and Ryan and I had a lot of conviction in the cloud and that we could eventually really make a strong case that the cloud is actually, and this sounded very audacious in 2008, while I think it's, it's accepted as, as correct today, that the claim we made in 2008 is your data will be safer in the cloud with a provider like Clio than it would be on an on-premise system sitting in a server in your, you know, again, for the average firm in your broom closet without even a a lock on it and, and without a proper security audit being performed on it on a on a daily basis and so on. So we really believe that 
in the long run, the cloud would would win. But when we announced the product and we launched our beta uh, just over 14 years ago now in March of 2008 at the ABA Tech Show in Chicago, it was a really interesting reaction from the audience where we got such a polarized response. We had some people come up to us and literally hug us and say, we've been waiting for somebody to build software like this. Thank you. I love what you've done with Clio and this is going to run my firm. And we had other people come up and basically verbally attack us saying, you know, that this is irresponsible for you to encourage lawyers to store their data with a third party, to store their data in the cloud. How dare you? Uh, and what we realized pretty early on, and again, this, this was starting to percolate in 2008, 2009, bar associations were, were starting to get questions about whether the cloud was acceptable for a lawyer to use or not. And in fact, the very first ethics opinion issued on cloud computing from North Carolina in the United States was the result of somebody asking if they could use Clio, essentially. And we, re we realized in this whole security and ethics discussion, we could either get dragged along by the debate, and that debate, by the way, was often being run by our on-premise competitors trying to run a campaign of FUD, of, of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So we realized that there were some forces at work that were really trying to undermine cloud adoption because they realized it was an existential threat to their business model. We realized we could either get dragged along by this conversation or really lead the conversation. And, and what we started doing in 2008, 2009 was started publishing white papers. I started speaking at any event I could get invited to, to, to speak on the security and acts of cloud computing for lawyers. Uh, I started getting CLE credits uh, distributed for the, the talks I gave on the topic. Our white papers started being cited by bar associations. We formed a lobby group called the Legal Cloud Computing Association that helped educate bar associations and law societies about the realities of cloud computing. And North Carolina ended up issuing a positive uh, ethics opinion on cloud computing, saying basically cloud computing is totally acceptable for a lawyer as long as they are honoring their duty of privacy and confidentiality to their, to their client and that they perform a reasonable level of due diligence on the cloud computer they select. So that was a great outcome for for us, a bit of a turning point in terms of cloud adoption and legal in the 2008-2009 time period. And over the last 14 years, we've seen this, this just explosion in the number of cloud-based products in, in legal. And we're, we're really proud to have been one of the, the trailblazers in that space and, and you know, obviously evolved to the leader in the cloud-based practice management space, but have this broader impact of you know, inviting this, this huge group of cloud-based companies dr helping drive true innovation in legal, which is something we're, we're really proud of. And absolutely right to be proud of, and it's inspiring. And I think the elephant in the room we need to address is also, and back to the entrepreneurs born, 2007, we were in a global recession. Right. You know, so that risk element of all in, believing in it, I think there's so much wisdom shared there that if you believe in something, you spot something, go all in. I forget the statistic of number of unicorns that are actually born from recessions, but actually in a downtime, it's not a bad time to get busy and start thinking about that creativity. I, I think that's very true. And I, I think... Uh, Good idea can be born anytime. And I think there's a lot of benefits to launching a company in a recession that aren't appreciated. You know, you, you, there's scrappiness, I think, that goes along with being founded in a, uh, in a recession. Things like hiring can be actually a lot easier in a climate like the one we had in 2007, 2008. And, and like the one, frankly, it feels like we're in right now as well with a lot of uncertainty in the economy. When you're building something new, you need every advantage you can get. And 
you know, especially if you're talking about building technology, a recessionary environment ends up being actually a, a really positive factor in the sense that every company, every law firm is trying to figure out how, how do I do more with less? How can I leverage technology to get better? And if you can figure out a way of solving a problem in that ecosystem and, and really advancing a specific business in terms of how they get work done and help make them more productive, uh, again, this kind of environment can be really positive. But I do remember wondering if I was insane uh, a few times <laughs> in, in 2008, especially the the week before we launched Clio, the cover of The Economist was, uh, the illustration was of the logos of every major bank in the world swirling around a drain. And the, the headline was, when will it end? <laughs> and, and again, we're, Ryan and I are looking at each other wondering, you know, are we really launching a product in this? In this environment, but but again, it turned out to be amazing timing. And and maybe the last comment I'll make on on this front as well is, I think companies. I, I talk about this concept of anti fragility in my CleoCon keynote, and the idea that in in these kinds of recessionary environments, there's always companies that are born, or companies that enter the recession and emerge from it stronger. And, and, and it can be a real crucible to help define a company culture, to help define the problem that a company is solving. And I'm a very big believer in constraints being a positive factor in a creative process. And, and again, working with whether it's financial constraints or, or otherwise is, is where real innovation and real creativity can happen. Yeah, and I just love your whole whole mindset on this. And I think the, the key point I'm taking from that as well, and going back to Nike, is, is just do it, right? You know, so many entrepreneurs have these ideas and get stuck in procrastination or they don't go for it. And it's incredible, you know, and I always say to people as well, it's better to be first than it is to be better sometimes. But in Clio's sense, you were first and you were better. So, you know, congratulations <laughs> on that. And I mentioned in the introduction, all the awards, all the accolades, everything you've been doing. But how did you build the company to what it is today? And can you explain more of that evolution of Clio? Yeah, for sure. And number one, I'll, I'll just comment. I, I agree that great is the enemy of good, you know, and, and you need to think about just shipping it. How do I get something out the door? How do I make incremental progress? I'm a huge fan of James Clear and, and his book, Atomic Habits, that just talks about, you know, just be incremental. You get 1% better at something every day. You're 37 times better at that thing in a year. So that's the kind of mindset I've always embraced for myself and embraced at Clio uh, as, as well as this idea of just incremental progress. And, and in a lot of ways, that, that's been realized at a company level where, again, it's a huge success today, but it, it's one of these overnight successes 14 years in the making. We started with pretty humble beginnings. It was just Ryan and I that coded all of Clio, where we were technical support agents, number one and two. We were salespeople, number one and two. We were wearing all the hats. And I think that's really essential to you know the early stages of a business is you need to do a job before you can train someone else to do that job. And you've got to roll up the sleeves and be willing to do basically everything from a soup to nuts kind of perspective in building the business. And that's something that Ryan and I did in the early days. And we scaled pretty slowly. We made a few hires over those first two years. And you know, Clio was only 13 people four years into our evolution. And then I think what we saw was just the tipping point of cloud adoption. It was, you know, it was really exciting progress over those first few years, but it was relatively progressive, I guess. And, and it wasn't exponential. It was more linear growth at that point. 
And then, you know, I, I really feel like we hit that S-curve of growth around 2012. And the, both the company and the, the product and, and its adoption rate in legal started to explode. And we, we, if we line this up against our financings as well, we, we raised a small angel round in 2008, raised our Series B in 2012, raised our Series C led by Bessemer Venture Partners in, in 2014. And this was some of the, the very first venture money, money in, in legal. So it was a, a really big deal raising at the time, $20 million from, from Bessemer Venture Partners. Uh, and then a, a huge investment round, $250 million investment round from, from TCV and JMI in 2018. And most recently, just over a year ago, a $110 million investment round from led by T. Rowe. And, you know, over the course of the 14 years, we've grown from me and Ryan, you know, two-person company to we're, we're almost a thousand people today with offices in Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, Dublin, uh, a, a huge international footprint. We're used in over 100 countries around the, the world. And in terms of the evolutionary journey along the way, I'd say one of the key challenges has always been how do we maintain the incredible culture that's existed in Clio? And that scaling journey from two people to a thousand people has just been a a wild journey. And what I'm one of the things I'm most proud of isn't the company's success; it's actually the, the cultural success we've seen as a company. And it's a company that people love to work at, that they feel deeply connected to their colleagues, they feel deeply connected to our mission. And we're really a mission-driven company to, with, with a mission to transform the legal experience for all. And the fact that you know, we've, we've been able to crystallize and instill you know, a set of values in our team, that those values are reflected in their day-to-day -day behaviors, and that clues a thousand-person organization with a footprint across these four offices, but also uh, we, we have a, a world of work that's very different than it was pre-pandemic as well, where much of our team is distributed around North America, around the world more broadly, that we've been able to keep that cultural connectivity strong over that time period is something I'm, I'm really proud of as well. And it's something I've personally tasted and experienced working with Cleon, all the Cleons, yeah. as you say, which I love. You know, everyone is, is down to earth, efficient, professional, and really believes in that mission that you mentioned. I love that you talk about compounding as well, going back to that point. I think it's so important taking those minutian details, how far you can go in a year, 10 years, plus wherever it may be. And I want to focus a little bit more on those obstacles because they say new level, new devil. Right. So, you know, what was the single biggest obstacle you faced whilst building Clear? You touched on obviously finding the people. And maybe a side question, just because I'm curious, the entrepreneur in me. Do you miss those days of being scrappy, just the two of you? Or would you, would you go back there again one day? Yeah, it's a, lots of great questions in there. And I, I've, I've never heard new level, new devil. That's a good, a good saying. Certainly resonates. And it's, it's part of what's kept me energized and, and excited to to continue working on Clio year after year as well. 14 years, a long time to be working on something. And at this point, Clio is really my life's work. And what's kept me excited and engaged every day is it does feel like a new job every quarter. You know, running a 100-person company is very different. Running a 150-person company is very different from running a 500-person company and so on. So the, the new levels and the new challenges you encounter along the way is, is something that's very exciting. I would say the, the biggest challenge we faced in the early days of Clio was fundraising in that 2008 
environment where we were pitching Clio and pitching to every VC, every angel investor that would listen to us and getting the most agonizing feedback, which was, this is one of the best pitches I've ever seen. You guys are onto something. There's no question this product is going to be successful, but I'm sorry, we're just not writing a check right now because people were just pencils down and worried that the financial system as we knew it was going to collapse. And as white knuckled as everyone is today about the recession that we're either about to enter or already in, there's not that level of fear. And, you know, there's certainly anxiety about what the economic ramifications of the recession are going to be and how long is this high inflation environment going to last and so on. But people aren't worried the financial system as we know it is going to collapse. And that was the worry in 2008. So I would say surviving that first year was the the biggest existential threat that Clio faced from a financial perspective. And the the punchline to that story is is hilarious, by the way. It's one of my favorite Clio stories. But against this backdrop of me and Ryan pitching every angel investor we could find and hearing no day after day after day. And, and you know, again, they talk about this a lot in, in startup land, but you need to be tenacious. You, you can't let the no's and the, the difficult days get you down. You just need to persevere through that. And so we heard no over and over and over again. And it turns out in, in 2008, this guy named Christoph Jans, who was, had just sold his company to the MySpace group yet, running this company called PageFlake as one of the very first web 2.0 homepage apps. So he sold his company and started investing his money as an angel investor. And he sent an email to me and Ryan, didn't know us personally, but my, a friend of mine had just published an article about Clio on this blog called web2.0central.com. Christoph read it and said, hey, I just read this blog post, it's fascinating. I, I like what you're doing with Clio. I'd be interested in potentially investing. And I just invested in this company called Zendesk. And that was when Zendesk was four guys in Copenhagen that Christoph made that investment. And, and Christoph was based in, in Germany, by the way. So we get this email from a web.de email address talking about investing. He sent it just to our info at goclio.com at the time. And it went straight to our spam folder because it looked like a spam email probably. And, and because we inadvertently slow played Christoph, he sends a follow-up email two weeks later saying, hey, I just want to reiterate, I'm really interested in what you guys are doing. I'd love to invest. And what I can only describe as an act of God, Ryan one day decides to check what's in his spam folder, which he'd never done previously. I don't think he's ever done since. And saw this email from Christoph and he forwards it to me and saying, hey, this, this looks legit. I follow up with Christoph. He does some due diligence. We get to know him. And he ends up leading Clio's seed round. And it was just a great example of, you know, number one, playing the odds and just making sure you're getting your name out everywhere. You know, my friend who wrote this blog post that Christoph ended up reading, I was initially a bit dubious about like, do we want to do an interview? Do we want to do the post? You just never know where the exposure that you generate will, will lead to. And, you know, I, I guess check your spam folder is the other piece of takeaway advice. Like you never know what you're going to find in there. And for us, it was a company defining moment. So that was the financing journey and the... The, the very strange story with Christoph, who ended up being not just the money we needed, but the investor we needed. He was a, a huge coach to me and Ryan. And that investment in Zendesk really helped us see some of the challenges that laid ahead of us in the in the journey. And then I, I think the second defining moment for us beyond just the, the financing question was, could we drive the adoption of cloud computing and legal? Like, could we really help make lawyers feel secure in their data being safe in the cloud. And, and this whole approach we had, I think, of being thought leaders around the security and ethics in cloud computing ended up 
helping us round that corner. But if we had not been proactive about that, I don't know if it would have happened. So again, it's it's we talked about Steve Jobs earlier, and one of the things he talked about is is just realizing you can change the world around you. And just if we felt like we were going to operate within the parameters that existed of the day in 2008, cloud computing for lawyers, a, a cloud-based LPM would just be a non-starter. No, it's not going to be widely accepted. But if you realize, no, we can drive transformation in this industry, we can change the mindset of this industry and embrace the fact that might take years or it, it probably took the better part of a decade to really drive that transformation. If you have that conviction, you can really, you can really change the world around you in a, in a positive way. Inspiring. I absolutely love it. And the word or the acronym that comes to mind with that is push. Persist until something happens. And I think what a fine example you just shared there of the Clio story. And I remember one of my mentors when I first started on business saying, staying in the game. You know, I think you talked a lot about mindset, resilience. You're right. going to experience all of those pushbacks, but also the opportunity, you know, checking that spam folder. You need a bit of luck along the way, but you make your own luck That's by actually right. taking that initiative of actually doing that. And I just absolutely love it. And a little top story, folks, it was an email in my junk inbox, which landed us to the relationship we have with Clio today. So there we go. Things always come full circle. Check always check your spam folder, but super inspired by that. Time for a short break from the show. Are you looking for a way to get your firm working more efficiently and profitably while ensuring a better work-life balance for your team? Well, if you haven't considered our sponsor, Clio, I'm here to strongly recommend that you do. I absolutely love working with Clio. Not only is it the world's leading legal practice management and legal client relationship management software, it also has a really solid core mission to transform the legal experience for all. Something I personally support. What sets Clio apart for me, it's their dedication to customer success and support. There are lots of legal softwares out there, but I know from talking to Clio users that their support offering is miles ahead of the rest with their 24-5 availability via email, in-app chat, and over the phone. Yes, you can actually call in and speak to someone. Clio is also the G2 crowd leader in legal practice management in comparison to 130 legal practice management softwares and has been for the last 14 consecutive quarters. G2 Crowd is the world's leading business solutions review website. You can check Clio's full list of features and pricing at www.clio.com forward slash legally dash speaking. That's www.clio.com forward slash legally dash speaking. Now back to the show. So let's talk about Clio in terms of what you offer. I'm a huge fan. You know, what are some of the current products you have on the market? So we've got our, our flagship product, which is Clio Manage, which is the product we launched 14 years ago that, that really, I think, is a law firm in a box. If you're a small to medium-sized law firm, everything you need to run your law firm from uh, intake to invoicing, you, you can track your time, manage your calendar, bill your clients, you can get paid electronically. There's just all sorts of capabilities in Clio Manage to help you run the business of law. And, and again, the, the essential problem that we looked to solve back in 2008 was the average lawyer goes to law school and learns how to be a great lawyer. They learn how to argue a case. Unfortunately, most lawyers do not learn anything about what running a successful law firm looks like, what running the business side of a law firm looks like. And we wanted to make Clio really that, that law firm in a box that makes 
running a successful law firm, really easy, really intuitive, really straightforward. If you just embrace the best practices in Clio, you will run a thriving law firm. So that's Clio Manage. We've acquired and organically built our own add-ons and extensions to Clio Manage over the years. Uh, we, we have Clio Grow now, which is a legal CRM that helps you manage from a lead to a client, essentially. So you can track where are you investing your marketing dollars? What, what acquisition channels for new clients are the most productive? Managing the process, basically the pipeline of somebody that comes in from your web website and how do you nurture that lead into a client eventually. So if you think about Clio manages everything that happens after you sign the engagement letter, Clio grow is basically everything that happens beforehand and, and helping manage that, that journey of a lead to becoming a client of your firm. We've recently acquired LawYaw. That was an acquisition we made about a, a year ago that is all about document automation and Again, this is based on our core belief that documents are the atomic unit of work in legal. And what can we do to help make documents more intelligent, more automated? How can we help you, for example, send a questionnaire to your clients to help them populate the fields in a document and produce a, a polished PDF that you can execute with integrated e-signing? So that's LawYaw. We also have a number of court forms available through LawYaw that help automate many pieces of court form workflows. And we're going to be bringing some of that technology to to the UK and our EMEA customers as well. Uh, and finally, we have uh, Clio Payments, which has been huge investment for us over the last couple of years, a huge area of innovation in legal, where we've, we've brought electronic payments as a deeply integrated and embedded piece of the Clio technology stack, something that spans everything from Clio Grow is to Clio Manage to, to LawYaw. And right now that's live in the US, but we will be bringing that to additional markets over the course of 2023 as well. And, and uh, really excited for the next chapter of growth with Clio Payments. Yeah, and it's exciting. And I, I personally hate this next question. So you can be like, nah, let's move on, Rob. But it's, uh, I think we're recording in 2022. Just put that on the record. What can we expect to see from Clio within the next five years? So, yeah, it's, I think it's a very fair question. And if I think about where we're at thematically, I think what we've really succeeded in over the last 14 years in building Clio is building the operating system for legal. And, and our vision there is, if you're a law firm of virtually any size now, you know, Clio's evolved from a product that was targeting solos and small firms with its functionality to a product that's used everywhere from the solos to some of the world's largest law firms are, are using Clio, deploying it across a handful of their practice groups. We've got now many customers that are, are 50 lawyers to 100, 150 plus lawyers on the platform. So we've succeeded in building this operating system for a huge chunk, 80 plus percent of the, the legal market from a law firm perspective. We have this incredible thriving ecosystem of 200 plus integration partners that are building on top of that platform to the cloud, you know, and, and now, now it's table stakes for a law firm to be thinking about how are we running our technology in the cloud. So I think in terms of our original mission from 14 years ago, it's kind of mission accomplished. You know, there's still a lot of, a lot of work to be done and we're still, I would say, in the early majority part of that adoption curve of the, the technology adoption, technology diffusion curve, but we're well on our way. So to me, what the next five years, maybe even the next 10 years about are going to be about is how do we change this idea of moving law practice management to the cloud to the idea of moving the law practice to the cloud? How do we help move the entire legal journey from a client's perspective to the cloud? 
and how do we help most law firms move most of their operations to the cloud as well. So what I'm talking about here is, yes, the technology you're using to run your law firm is in the cloud, but how do we fundamentally transform the client experience and the way that consumers, both business consumers and, and personal consumers alike, how do they access legal services? And we know most legal demand today is starting with a Google search. And how do we kind of build out from there and say, you know, the, the need for, for example, bricks and mortar law offices may be vastly reduced in the future as a result of this transformation. We're going to have lawyers taking that client right from Google to uh, a virtual meeting and a secure meeting online. Uh, those clients don't necessarily need to come into your law office to, to help you write down answers to a questionnaire. They can do that online with a really simple, streamlined workflow. One of the big themes I talk about is the idea that consumer expectations have shifted radically over the course of the last decade, and especially the course over the course of the last two or three years with the pandemic in terms of how they expect every service provider they work with to adopt and embrace technology. So for me, the next five or 10 years is, is really going to be about that much more fundamental and deep transformation of legal, how lawyers work with each other, how they work with clients, how we move that entire client journey to the cloud. And as a result, the, the outcome I think we'll have from this is one I'm really excited about as well, where I think we'll have lawyers that are happier and more productive and have better work-life balance, which is a huge struggle for struggle for the profession. We'll have clients that are seeing better legal outcomes and less friction associated with their legal journey. And because we're, we're taking out a huge amount of cost basis from the way most law firms are operating today, we'll be able to deliver legal services more affordably and more accessibly and improve access to justice. So I, I think if we execute on this vision for the next five to 10 years, there's going to be a huge win-win-win uh, for lawyers, for clients, and access to justice. I love that. And it's very clairvoyant of you because my next question was going to be in your interview with Reuters, you did share prior to the pandemic, things were broken. We had an inaccessible legal system that delivered a really poorly in terms of access to justice, delivered on average, really poor client outcomes and customer experiences. So we know, and you've just mentioned there, Clio provides legal aid billing. So how else is Clio sort of committed to remedying that inaccessibility regarding the legal system? Anything you would like to expand on? Yeah, something I'm really passionate about is helping, helping legal professionals understand that improving access to justice is not synonymous with doing pro bono work. And when we talk about the access to justice problem, and we talk about the fact that 77% of legal problems are not solved by lawyers today, and that's a stat from the World Justice Project, this, this is not gonna be solved by an army of lawyers doing pro bono work. What we're really seeing here is that product market fit between the way lawyers deliver their services today and the way that the average consumer wants to consume them has extremely poor product market fit. If legal was a startup, it would be told it's got a lot of work to do to improve product market fit. And, and to me, you know, what, what needs to happen here is, is, is not solved by pro bono. This is about lawyers fundamentally rethinking how do we price and package and deliver our legal services? And how, how can we get more innovative on pricing to deliver products in a way that legal consumers want to consume them. We had Seth Godin speak at ClioCon a few years ago, and one of the quotes from his speech that stuck with me, and it was, it was so simple but so profound as Seth is great at, at doing, he said, 
no one ever woke up with a billable hour problem, <laughs> you know, and, and yet that's what most lawyers are selling is billable hours. You want to buy a billable hour, maybe two or three, and, and you need to build empathy. And this is what I talk a lot about in my, my book, The Client-Centered Law Firm, is you need to build empathy for your clients. You need to understand truly what are the problems you're going to solve for them. Work outward from that. And when you think innovatively about solving those problems, we can really solve the access to justice problem, which is really, at the end of the day, a product market fit problem. We are not selling legal solutions to consumers in a way that is accessible to them or compelling to them. And I'll give you one concrete example of what this can look like. This, this can all sound kind of heady and theoretical, but let, let's just look at something as simple as a will. And if you're a wills and estates lawyer and you're producing a will, most lawyers think about this as a really transactional process. You know, you come into my office, you ask for a will, I'll interview, I'll find out how many kids you have, you're married, I'll, I'll give you a piece of paper or two, tell you to lock it in a, a safe deposit box and charge you 500 or $1,000 for it. And for most lawyers, that's the end of it. They, they will never follow up with that client. They'll never talk to that client again unless that client reaches out to them. And that, that's what's so broken, you know, is, is number one, if you're building empathy for what's truly going on with that client, you understand what they're looking for is actually peace of mind. They're not looking for a piece of paper. They're looking for peace of mind that if something happens to them unexpectedly, their family's taken care of. How do you create that peace of mind? Well, it's not a transaction. It's an ongoing process. You want to make sure that will is up to date no matter what happens in their life. Do they get married? Do they get divorced? Do they have kids? Do they move from one location to another, different jurisdiction? That might, all of that might require their will gets updated. And you start to think about that and you realize, well, maybe a will should actually be a subscription. Maybe it's something you're paying $50 a year for rather than $500 up front. Maybe you say for that $50 a year, maybe it's $100 a year, you get as many updates to your will as you need to reflect your changing and evolving life circumstance. I'll send you a questionnaire once a year asking you what's changed. Make sure you've got that up-to-date will. And now, you know, if you think about just that simple shift in thinking, the way you would price and package the legal solution in that scenario, you've, you've done a few things. Number one, you've actually solved the legal outcome the client's looking for. You've created a solution to their problem. Again, nobody woke up needing a piece of paper to put in their safe deposit box. They woke up needing peace of mind. And, and a lawyer can be a partner in helping create that, that great legal outcome. This is also a win for the lawyer because instead of a fixed transactional fee of $500 or $1,000, he's now got a recurring annuity. He, he's now got recurring revenue of $500 or $50 or $100. And the lifetime value of that, by the way, and this is another concept from the SaaS world, the software as a service world that I think a lot of lawyers would benefit from learning about is the lifetime value of that customer is going to be how long they pay you that, that 50 or $100 a month or a year rather. And that will turn into you know, a client that is $5,000 or maybe even $10,000 over their lifetime uh, in terms of revenue. So hugely positive outcome for the lawyer, both from a cash flow perspective and from a lifetime value perspective. And finally, on the access to justice piece, there's a lot more people that can afford $50 or $100 a year for a legal solution that can afford $500 or $1,000 upfront for a transaction. So we've actually improved access to justice too. So this is where I think I get so excited about this idea of reinventing the way we do legal because there's a lot of examples like that where you can create a win-win-win 
for the client, for the lawyer, and for access to justice. This does not mean lawyers need to make less money. This does not mean you need to be short tripping your clients. This does not mean pro bono work. I mean, that pro bono work is great and it has its place, but we're not going to solve this product market fit problem with pro bono legal services. We need to rethink how we're delivering legal services. And that, that I think, is a huge this latent legal market, this 77% of legal problems that do not get solved by lawyers, is a massive opportunity for any lawyer that can think innovatively about creating their, their solutions. That, folks, is a masterclass in commercial awareness. We talk and read a lot of these blogs, so I'll just dissect that. We're talking about customer lifetime value. We're talking about annual recurring revenue. And if you're a shareholder or you're an owner in your business, you want that, your value of your shares is immediately going to go up. We talk about you don't just want clients. Clients are good, but relationships pay. Touch points where you can follow up with them. Value add. All of those amazing experiences. It's much the same as me with my legal recruiting business. We're not trying to build a database. We're not transactional. We want to grow with people's careers. Let's start with them at the beginning. Look at that customer lifetime value to when they make partner and look at the long-term relationship. So folks, rewind what Jack just said. Listen to that 10 times over. Make notes and I can assure you, you'll definitely know a lot more about commercial awareness and what's going on in the the legal world moving forward. So you did touch on your book and I want to talk a little bit more about that, the client-centered law firm. So what do you hope for your audience really to learn and really take away from the book? Well, the book is really advocating for a paradigm shift in terms of how lawyers think about delivering their legal services. And it's it's a shift that is away from, I think, what has historically been a very lawyer-centered way of thinking about legal service delivery. And again, something as foundational as the billable hour, you know, is, is a lawyer-centered construct. But this is something that is helping lawyers, helps create predictability for lawyers, helps create certainty around the time investment and the financial outcome that will be associated with a legal project for a lawyer, but it is not what the average client is looking for. You know, the average client, again, is looking for a solution to a problem. They want to have, in, in many cases, value-based billing. They want to understand what they're getting into, and they want their lawyer to feel like a partner to them, as you pointed out, not somebody that is they're transacting at an hourly on an hourly basis with, but somebody that is a true partner to solving their business problem or their personal problem with. And what, what I talk about in the client-centered law firm is just a, a real paradigm shift in terms of how do we rethink the way we're delivering legal services. If we kind of let the, the Reuters quote that you highlighted, if we just accept that the legal system as it exists today is broken, and again, you can't look at the data and not agree with that. You know, 77% of legal problems not being solved by lawyers huge access to justice problem. Lawyers, you know, and, and this, this strange paradox, by the way, when we look at our legal trends report data, we also see that 80% of lawyers say the number one thing they need to help grow their law firm is more clients. So on one side, on, on the demand side of consumers, you have people saying, well, 77% of people aren't having their legal problems solved. And on the the supply side of the equation with lawyers ready to solve those problems, you have 80% of lawyers saying, I I don't have enough clients, I want more clients. Any economist would look at this and just say, well, what's broken? Why can't we connect the the supply and the demand? And it is because we've, we've got this broken product market fit. So the data tells us legal is broken. It's, it's working for a very narrow slice, both lawyers and clients. How do we re-envision it? And how do we kind of take a clean sheet redesign of how we might approach delivering legal services. And there's just so much inertia as well. You know, legal is a very precedent-driven profession. It's a profession where 
a young lawyer goes and learns how to be a lawyer and how to run a law practice from a more senior lawyer. And unfortunately, what ends up being the case is a lot of very constrained thinking ends up happening as a result. There's not, you know, even the example I just talked about with wills, there's not a lot of out of the box thinking about it. It's, it's, it's this is how we've always done it. It's how we've always done it for hundreds of years in some cases. So the client-centered law firm is basically, you know, a manifesto, number one saying there's a new way of thinking about how we deliver legal services and we can do it in a client-centered way where we, we build empathy for our clients. We build a deep understanding of the problems they're trying to solve and we work out from there to build a very client-centered approach to building a solution for them. The key point in this as well, by the way, is, is that we are not, this is not client first. This is client-centered. The reason I don't call it be client first is that, of course, implies an ordering where the lawyer's interest or the law firm's interests or the paralegal's interests are second, third, and, and fourth to the client. And again, this is not the mindset. If we do a good job of client-centered design, we can realize these win-win-wins where it's actually a better outcome for everyone. It's not a trade-off. It's not a zero-sum game. It's actually a positive-sum game where we can have a better outcome for lawyers for clients and for access to justice. So the, the book really does two things. It helps motivate why being client-centered is so important. It helps motivate the idea that client expectations have shifted radically in the 10 years, that we're seeing the consumerization of legal services and that consumer expectations are being reshaped by all the experiences they're having on a day-to-day -day basis, whether that's with, with Amazon or Airbnb or Uber or other professionals in their, in their life, their, their expectations are being reshaped dramatically. And then it's, it's a, a playbook for how to do that. It, it's really, really pragmatic and practical in terms of how do you actually bring these learnings to, to life. And I'm just inspired by this whole conversation because we've talked about Jack, the entrepreneur, the author, the CEO, but I want to sort of put your own personal hat back on because you're also an investor and you know, right. you know, you invest in companies, you feel free to share if you'd like some of your investments you've done and how do you spot a good investment? Yeah. So I've, I've done a, a number of investments from an angel investment perspective and, and really you know, I have a very simple thesis when it comes to investing and, and I invest in entrepreneurs that inspire me and that are mission driven and that I think can change the world. So I'll, I'll give you two examples of investments I've made in, in Jacqueline Schaefer at Clearbrief. She has built this incredible, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Clearbrief, but it's this AI driven tool to help lawyers write better briefs and be more accurate in their citations and, and just build really compelling documents that help them argue their case in a, in a very definitive way supported by AI and ML. And Jacqueline is just one of those people that you can tell will run through walls to, to realize the vision she has for this product. Hello Divorce is another uh, company I've invested in and Erin Levine, the founder and CEO there, she's another just incredible visionary that has, has a vision for how she can reshape uncontested divorces. And it's another great example, by the way, of this win-win-win scenario where she has made uncontested divorces that used to cost $20,000 on average, something that consumers can access for $1,000 or $2,000. The lawyers that work for Aaron behind the scenes at Hello Divorce are the same lawyers that used to do those $20,000 divorces, the very complex and, and more adversarial divorces. They're making 
more money doing a higher volume of transactions with with this hello divorce business model than they were in their old world of of doing the twenty thousand dollar divorces and again to this access to justice piece the the consumers are seeing legal outcome that they may not have been able to afford previously people are getting out of abusive relationships that they wouldn't have been able to previously thanks to the technology and the platform Aaron has built at Hello Divorce. Uh, so really, you know, my I, I invest in startups I believe in, in founders I believe in that I think are driving positive transformation for the, the world and just kind of fit into almost what I would consider the, you know, the halo of this, this, this vision I have for how we can create a better and more just legal system with technology. I love that. And I love how you, you know, they say people buy from people and you were just articulating the traits that you look for in those people and running through walls and that mindset they have. And yeah, I'm just a big fan of your strategy. So we can't finish this podcast without talking about ClioCon. So I was absolutely loved it this year. I was live streaming in from London. I thought it was a fantastic event. Can you tell us more about ClioCon and also talk a little bit more about your keynote, which I found fascinating because you touched on it briefly earlier on about the anti-fragile law firm. So we'd love to just talk a little bit more about that sure. and tell folks about Clio. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a great question. And I'm I'm still on a high from Clio despite, you know, the distance of a couple of weeks and, and uh, jet lag flying halfway around the, the world to to be here in London this week, I am absolutely still on a, a high from from ClioCon. It was so energiz- energizing to be back in person. It was our most well-attended ClioCon ever with 2,000 plus attendees on the ground and 1,000 attendees virtually. This remote viewing party in London and viewing parties that were happening around the world, attendees from uh, over 20 countries attending the conference both virtually and in person was was phenomenal. So it was great seeing what an international event ClioCon has become. It is, you know, I, I think without, you know, I realize I, I am running ClioCon, but I do believe it's it's the best legal technology conference in the world now, which is a, a really, you know, it's not just me that thinks that. People like like Bob and Roji have commented on on the same thing, that we've, over the course of now the decade of running ClioCon, it was our 10th anniversary, which made it a really special ClioCon as well. I, I feel really proud of what we've been able to accomplish in terms of creating a conference that is bigger than just Clio. You know, the, our vision has always been, let's make this the conference where the leading minds in legal innovation come together and, and envision a better legal system and envision how technology can be an essential part of realizing that future vision. And, and so what we've built with and what we've, what we've accomplished with ClioCon is something I'm incredibly proud of. And, and what, I, what I talked about in the opening keynote was really the fact that it's the innovators and the, the people in that room or that in, in that community more broadly that we have at ClioCon that are the ones that are going to be equipped to not just survive, but to thrive in the kind of economic uncertainty that we're, we're entering. And we've seen this group thrive over the course of COVID as well. I shared some data in the keynote about just the, the huge surge in legal demand we've seen and how the people in this Clio community of, of lawyers have been able to step up and address that demand and how their firms as a result have thrived in this in this climate. And and what I, you know, when I was sitting back and, and looking at the data from the Legal Trends Report and thinking about, you know, what, what are some of the key takeaways for, for me that I wanted to articulate in, in the keynote and in the Legal Trends Report, it reminded me of this concept I'd, I'd read about about 10 years ago in a book called Anti-Fragile by Nicholas Nassim Taleb. And, and what, what he talks about in this book is 
the notion that we need a term for a system or for people that are the opposite of fragile. People that, you know, and it's not just being resilient. You know, and I think this is the key point. It's like resiliency is like, okay, you, you survived something. You got through it. You're maybe battered and beat down a bit, but you got through it. And what we saw, I think, with the legal profession as a whole, we saw this in, I think it's the way we felt, and it's what we saw in the data as well, is it was something much more than just resiliency. Like the, the legal profession thrived over the course of the pandemic. And I think what most lawyers would agree, exiting the pandemic, is that they are in a better place personally than when they entered the pandemic. They've got better work-life balance. They're doing just as much, if not more, work for their clients and driving just as many, if not more, good legal outcomes for their clients. We saw the courts, which are historically very slow-moving, embrace things like Zoom and video technology. So all things considered, and against this, this is a, against a backdrop of a lot of death and devastation and bad things, we saw an industry that really thrived. And I think in both qualitative and quantitative sense, has emerged from the pandemic stronger and better than when it entered it. And that was what Taleb talks about is anti-fragility. Like what's the opposite of fragile? Like it, it could have easily been the case that the legal system collapsed <laughs> and lawyers stopped being able to do work full stop. And we just exited the pandemic with a huge backlog of legal work and a lot of lawyers that are unemployed that had failed to navigate this pandemic. And instead we see this incredibly thriving ecosystem and that is the concept of anti-fragility in a real sense. And, and what I'm you know, excited by, and the reason I think this concept was so important to educate lawyers around, is, is really thinking about how can we crystallize some of the learning over the course of the pandemic and think deliberately about how do we build anti-fragile law firms? How can we build law firms that are not just resilient, but able to thrive through these downturns? And, and whatever we're about to enter, you know, in terms of the, the kind of recession or broader challenging macro environment we're going to be facing for the next handful of years, there are going to be law firms that emerge from this weaker and, and maybe law firms that, that go out of business over the course of that time period. But there's going to be a lot of law firms that come out stronger and better. And this concept of being an anti-fragile law firm, how do you build yourself and evolve into an anti-fragile law firm was, you know, my, my framework for how law firm can think about being very deliberate about that and not just letting it be an accident or coin toss in terms of whether they're one of the ones that thrive or suffer over the course of, of this, this macro environment. How can they be very deliberate about embracing practices and embracing the mindset uh, and the technologies that will enable them to be anti-fragile. Yeah. And I have to say, I'd never heard of the anti-fragile term before, but it was one of the best keynotes and everything that you mentioned just really landed with me. I think your keynote on top of the Legal Trends Report are two of the greatest things I think I've actually listened to throughout the course of this year. And I'm still on a high. I'm still wearing my socks. I've got my Cleocon socks. I, I want some of those so, special um, UK Cleocon edition socks. I don't have a pair yet. Well, we'll make it happen. I don't know why I'm saying we'll make it happen to the CEO of the show, but hey, whatever. Um, it's you know a, someone. You I know, know someone. someone who knows someone. I'll, I'll speak to someone. So this has been a blast. So if our listeners, which I'm sure they will want to, want to know more about Clio, the products, what's the best way for them to find out more, feel free to shout out any of the web links, social media, and we'll also share them with this episode too. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Rob. It's been a blast as well. Really uh, had a great time here and it's great to, to finally meet you in person. And to learn more about Clio, check out Clio.com. You can check me out on Twitter at Jack 
underscore Newton. And between those those two resources, that's where I do most of my talking, where you can find out all you want to know about Clio. Well, thank you so much once again. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. We did it in real life as well. Wishing you and all the Clios lots of continued success for the future. But for now, over and out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, the Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com for the link to join our community there. Over and out.